When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Bonus episode, you guys. Bonus episode. This is what happens when, as my husband says, I get my foot stuck in the fun wheel. I have all the greatest intentions, and I really, truly thought this was just going to be two episodes, and we actually have a still a ton of stuff to go over when it comes to pure O and mental compulsions. So if you haven't yet, definitely go back and check the first two episodes. So episodes, I think, 82 and 83, um, you'll get so much more information there. This is really just going to be the icing on the cake as far as this now three-part episode goes. So in the last episode where we left off, I was talking about ways that you could implement some strategies if resisting a mental ritual completely was just way too hard or it felt kind of impossible. So we went over specifically skills like reducing uh, mental compulsions. We talked about postponing compulsions and we talked about undoing compulsions. So that's where we're kind of leaving off. I promised you guys that we would start off with two case examples. So now that we kind of have all this context and we've laid a really good foundation for what mental compulsions are, what pure O is, um, some of the quote unquote justifications for mental compulsions, how that gets in the way, um, and some functions of mental compulsions. We're going to go over two case examples and just try to put it all together in, in, in a nice little example. So first example here is Ken. Poor Ken. So Ken is a 35-year-old male recovering from sexual orientation OCD. So for those of you who are unaware, sexual orientation OCD is um, just when OCD tends to latch on to one's perceived sexual orientation. Um, A lot of times people who struggle with this particular subtype seem to doubt or want certainty about their sexual orientation um, in a way that feels very ego dystonic or distressing to them. So that's what Ken is struggling with. He spent the past several months working on exposure and response prevention with a therapist to work through his fears of not being 100% certain of his sexuality. He has reduced rituals like avoidance and confessing to his wife. He recently had the intrusive thought that maybe his lack of anxiety around exposures means he's actually attracted to men. Meaning like, okay, well, I'm not anxious anymore when I look at guys. Maybe that actually means that I do like it. Like, what does this lack of anxiety response mean about me? He began to ruminate about this by attempting to answer this question, identifying why he was anxious, 
trying to think about all the reasons why he still did not like men and counting all the other contributors to why his anxiety could be coming down. Um, basically trying to find any way or any other uh, way to attribute this decrease in anxiety to other than I'm actually gay. I actually like it. So what Ken is struggling with is he pretty much had this trigger, right? This this natural doubt, this natural um, case of, of having to tolerate uncertainty in the form of maybe not being anxious means you actually like it. So maybe that intrusive experience or that intrusive thought or that intrusive doubt didn't come up as overtly or as specifically as that. But I think we could all agree that based on the information that we have, that's pretty much the experience that Ken had, right? So that that was the intrusive doubt that came in. In, in one form or another, maybe not being anxious means you actually like it. And so then Ken began to accept kind of responsibility for this thought, right? Like, oh my gosh, I have to figure this out. If I don't figure this out, I might be missing something. I need to know that my experience is normal. Um, I can't possibly be uncertain about that. I have to figure this out. And so that attribution of that thought being significant, of that thought warranting some type of response somehow, um, leads Ken to feel a lot of anxiety. So maybe some physiological effects of anxiety, his thoughts are starting to race. And so because that anxiety is very unpleasant and we are wired to naturally try to reduce that anxiety, Ken has started to give in to some compulsions. So rumination being the big one, um, clearly mentally engaging with this uh, thought or with this doubt that maybe his his lack of anxiety actually means something more significant. Uh, maybe it's not just as simple as the fact that he is no longer anxious about it. Maybe it actually means something more. Um, maybe he's even reviewing old conversations, say, with his therapist, or maybe he's reviewing old interactions with other male figures, trying to check how he felt in those moments. It's also probable that he's giving himself some self-assurance, right? Like, oh, my therapist told me that this would happen, da-da-da-da-da. And so those compulsions are really great in that in the moment, they reduce his anxiety, even if it's just temporarily. But unfortunately, that relief negatively reinforces the obsession to begin with, right? So um, the reduction of that anxious feeling and the relief that the compulsion provides it basically sends Ken's brain the message that this thought is intolerable. You need to uh, respond to this thought similarly or even more intensely in the future. You can't possibly handle this thought. And so whether Ken likes it or not, whether Ken is aware of it or not, and even if he had the best of intentions, by ruminating, by analyzing, by reviewing old conversations, and by giving himself assurance, himself self-assurance, he is essentially giving his brain a document that says, not being anxious is scary. You can't tolerate that in the future. Please alert me to anything like this in the future. Please alert me to anything related to this concept in the future so that I can survive. And so consciously or not, Ken's brain is saying, yeah, this is probably supposed to happen. Uh, good, because I couldn't handle that doubt. I'm not capable of handling that, so on and so forth. And so his brain is going to be on the lookout for that next time. So uh, Ken, whether he likes it or not, he's going to be more anxious. He's going to be more doubtful, more uncertain, so on and so forth. 
how I would handle a situation with Ken, I would first of all, just go really hard on my psychoeducation on these rituals, kind of like I'm doing right here on this podcast. I would also go over some of my observations, um, some really quick little things that Ken might not even be aware of are ritualistic, right? Like, you know, I, I might want to really just zone in on that and give him my observations as a third party. We would also want to go over that functional analysis that I talked about in previous episodes. So what is the function behind the behavior of ruminating? Wanting to figure out whether or not he's gay, which again, was the whole purpose of his treatment to begin with, right? So we're going to go over things like the function of wanting to know, wanting to be 100% sure. And we want to make it very clear with Ken how these rituals could essentially lead him back to square one, that this is, in fact, not all that different from all the other intrusive doubts or intrusive experiences that he had in the beginning of treatment, and that this is still just OCD wanting him to be 100% sure about his sexual orientation. So we also want to make sure that Ken is aware of how to uh, provide alternative responses to his uh, intrusive thoughts and intrusive doubts. So instead of, you know, wanting to urgently get rid of that anxiety or wanting to try to be 100% sure, and instead of continuing to go down that rabbit hole, we're going to go over those non-engagement strategies that we talked about in a previous episode too. So things like welcoming in the thoughts, uh, acknowledging your thoughts kind of non-judgmentally, um, leaning into the thoughts and welcoming it in, even egging it on is a really great non-engagement strategy. Saying things like, well, that would suck, or maybe, could be, I don't know, I'm not going to try to figure that out. Um, and really just honing in on what it means to be preventing these rituals, even if they're mental. Um, I really want Ken to know too that no matter how much you think about this, you still may never know, right? Like so many people like Ken and so many of you out there are like this too. I bet you're wanting that golden, magical splitting of the seas moment of clarity, right? Like that you just want to know. You want that rushing sense of relief. You want it all to be taken away. You just want everything to kind of click into place as though the seas are literally splitting and everything makes sense. And oh my gosh, it's all over. Like the lights are on and I get it now. And unfortunately, that is never going to happen. It's not going to happen with Ken. It's not going to happen with anyone else who has sexual um, orientation OCD. It's not going to happen in OCD, period. Regardless of what it is that your OCD is wanting, whether it's uh, clarity about some type of health concern, whether it's um, you know certainty about what someone else thinks of you, whether it's you know, that you are sick or that you got someone else sick or that you didn't, right? Like you're never going to have that splitting of the seas moment of clarity where just certainty strikes you like a lightning bolt and everything is fine. Because even if it does happen, even if it is enough for the OCD in that moment, OCD is always going to doubt that. And even if it doesn't doubt that, right, like somehow you get this like as close to certainty as you could possibly get type of experience, it's going to latch onto something else. It's going to start to feed somewhere else. 
And so we have to let go of that expectation. We have to stop holding our breath that that is going to happen because it, it's not. That, that's never going to happen. Ken is never going to get that thunderbolt of clarity and 100% certainty that he is not gay. I would challenge Ken to also consider what does that even look like? What does it look like for you to finally get what the OCD wants? Ken's probably not going to have a response. And I think that's going to be a really kind of eye-opening moment for Ken. And then obviously we're going to want to do exposures for Ken. We're going to want to do exposure and response prevention. And in this case, because Ken seems to really be triggered by the absence of anxiety, I'm going to want Ken to do an exposure that doesn't bother him anymore. I'm going to want Ken to go back and do a really boring exposure let him get bored by it. And then that boredom, that lack of anxiety is actually going to trigger itself into its own little exposure, right? Like the, the lack of anxiety here is, is, is anxiety provoking to me. Oh my gosh, why am I not feeling anxious about this? So that might be a really good um, opportunity for Ken to kind of start to work through some of those things. Now we're going to talk about a different case example. I hope that that was helpful with Ken. Um, we're going to talk about Sarah. So totally different. Ken's Ken's taken care of. Ken's working on his recovery. We worked him up. He's he's good to go. He's working on his recovery. He's working on exposures. We're moving on to Sarah now. So Sarah is a 23-year-old female seeking treatment for OCD symptoms related to fears of developing schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. Sarah identifies triggers such as sudden changes in mood, depictions in movies and the media of individuals who have schizophrenia or psychosis, and other strange sensory experiences. She engages in mental compulsions, including keeping track of her mood fluctuations, uh, distracting herself, and challenging her thoughts. She keeps track of moods by comparing when the last time was that she felt a certain way and analyzing whether it made sense given the context of that situation. When experiencing a strange experience, in terms of her sensory world, she often distracts herself by thinking of all the good things in her life. She challenges her thoughts by reminding herself that she does not have a family history of psychotic disorders. So before we get into uh, the big web here and the OCD cycle as it applies to Sarah, we're going to take a quick break, to, uh, talk about one of my favorite, favorite products, and we'll be right back to talk about what the heck we're going to do with Sarah. I've often said that one of my favorite go-to self-care routines is to get my nails done. But if you're like me, then you just can't justify salon prices or the harshness that these bring to your nails. Olive in June allows you to get the salon quality manicures and pedicures at home. You can easily go up to seven days without chipping, you don't have to leave the house, and you can finally stop spending $35 or more every two weeks on getting them done. For $10 off your first order, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com and click on deals. All right. Oh, Sarah, 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 what are we going to do with Sarah? It's okay. Cause we know exactly what to do. So Sarah seems to be having the intrusive experience of your mood is changing too quickly. So that's, this is just one example. So again, whether that came in the form of an image or a thought or a what if, or just a, a feeling, doesn't really matter, but that's kind of her generic intrusive experience. Your mood is changing too quickly. 
So the kind of attributions or ways that she interpreted that as being significant somehow um, might have sounded like that's not normal. You need to figure this out. If you don't figure it out now, something bad is going to happen, so on and so forth. These thoughts obviously made her anxious. And so um, physiological sensations of anxiety start to rise. Maybe she starts to feel some even more bodily sensations that kind of freak her out even additionally to her mood changing. Um, that makes her feel like she needs to give into some compulsions. So maybe she's checking her past experiences. Maybe she's trying to check um, all the things that are going on in her life, maybe her menstrual cycle to determine like what would justify my mood changing right now. I got, I'm, I'm really frustrated right now, just kind of out of nowhere. What could possibly be the other reasons for that? Right. So she's trying to find any other reason to explain why her mood might be changing because she wants it to be something other than that. She's going to maybe, you know, start to show signs of psychosis. Maybe she's analyzing, you know, other aspects of her mood that have been off lately, just generally ruminating, trying to figure it out. Um, or maybe she's just, maybe she's also trying to fix how she feels. So if she feels like for some reason that she should be happy and pleasant right now because she's not in the middle of her uh, period or expecting her period anytime soon, and it would just be uncalled for according to the OCD for her to feel anything right now other than pleasant and happy, maybe she starts to actually force those feelings because she feels like that's how she should be. Um, and so doing any of these things makes her feel some sense of relief, even if it's just for a little bit. Um, but as we know, as we've talked about in the past episodes and with Ken, uh, that compulsion negatively reinforces the obsession, right? So, um, She's by doing these compulsions, she's basically sending her message to her brain like unexplained changes in your mood are dangerous. You can't tolerate not knowing. It's important to understand and make sense of all of your experiences. So be sure to do that next time, right? So um, even if that feels relieving in the moment, it leads to a lot of problems and a lot of difficulties in the long run because she's basically training her brain to protect herself from any type of emotional changes, um, to kind of be vigilant for and look out for any changes that might be indicative, even slightly or somewhat of potential psychosis. And so a lot of our approach is going to be very similar to what we did with Ken. So we're going to go over the same you know, psychoeducation for the most part, obviously tailoring it to Sarah and her experience in particular. Go over the fact that she's wanting to be kind of 100% certain that she's in the clear, that um, she wants to be kind of 100% clear or 100% certain that she's in the clear, that she will never develop schizophrenia, that she will never develop any uh, psychosis or anything like that. Um, and I would just explain to Sarah when she's ready to, to have that conversation that the reality is that no one is 100% in the clear, that me, myself right here you know, meeting with you, Sarah, I'm not 100% in the clear, that no one is 100% in the clear when it comes to schizophrenia, psychosis, anything. It's just that OCD comes in and says, do these rituals and somehow you'll be in the clear. But we know that that's not true. So for Sarah, I would talk to her about what things on a day-to-day -day basis cause her difficulties. Um, 
whether it's certain sensory experiences, movie depictions, like she had talked about. Um, so we could certainly do exposures around um, watching movies that have depictions of individuals who have schizophrenia or psychotic disorders or psychotic symptoms. Uh, we could certainly do worry scripts or imaginal exposures with the purpose of practicing response prevention. Um, and then there are also a lot of uh, really effective and, and helpful hallucination simulations that I've had to use in the past on YouTube. Um, so looking up things like auditory hallucination simulation or visual um, hallucination simulation. These are all things that would probably be uncomfortable for anybody, um, but Sarah is going to do these things with the intention of resisting her rituals before, during, and after. So she's going to have to resist things like reassuring herself that she's fine and that it's not actually that big of a deal. Um, she's going to have to resist researching uh, schizophrenia later or psychotic symptoms later. She's going to have to just allow herself to be anxious. And so we've talked about Ken, we've talked about Sarah. Um, and so I want to give you all some final tips and tricks here as we wrap up this, this conversation on mental compulsions and Puro. So I want you all to keep in mind, and really these are good tips and tricks regardless of what kind of compulsions you struggle with, uh, but particularly for mental compulsions. I want you all to know that OCD can't survive without your participation. So I work with so many people who are just desperate and completely debilitated by their OCD. And they get so frustrated, like so desperately asking me, like, how do I stop? I want to stop. I don't want to live this way anymore. And it, it's all about identifying how are you participating in that relationship, right? Because OCD can't survive without your participation somehow. So in therapy, we will work with you to determine how you're participating and how to gradually, if necessary, uh, kind of pull you away from that, how to get you to participate less and less, how to not make as much of a home for OCD, how to make it as unwelcome as possible. I also want to remind you all that it's not about sexual orientation. It's not about contamination. It's not about schizophrenia for Sarah. It's not about any of that stuff. So regardless of what your subtypes are, and, and yes, they are very personal to you. They allow you all a sense of solidarity uh, to kind of connect to other people who struggle with those similar issues. It provides some good clinical um, just case information when you're seeking out a therapist. So the subtypes are helpful. But you have to keep in mind at the end of the day that regardless of what the specific content is, that at the end of the day, it's OCD, regardless, that it's all treated. Um, the meat and potatoes of the treatment are the same. Obviously, it's tailored differently for each individual. The exposures and the response prevention is going to be a little bit different. Uh, but the meat and potatoes of the treatment are the same. So OCD is the doubt disorder. It's going to always come back down to how do we increase your threshold? How do we increase your uh, window of tolerability for, for uncertainty? So I want you all too, to re keep this metaphor in mind. I think this is probably one of the most helpful metaphors that I can tell people when it comes to mental compulsions. I think when it comes to mental compulsions, in order to kind of stop them or reroute them, they're kind of like trains. So a train is going to be a lot easier to stop or reroute or kind of bring back to the station early on in its route 
versus like when it's three hours deep in its trajectory, right? So um, by the time that a train has been going for three hours and has been chugging along for a while, it has a lot of momentum. It's it's going to be difficult to stop that versus when it's only been chugging along for maybe a couple seconds or even a couple minutes. So with that said, what I'm saying about mental compulsions is that they work the same way. So if you can have the goal of maybe not stopping rumination altogether, not resisting rumination altogether, going from like hundreds of times you find yourself engaging in that behavior every day to just, I'm not going to do it anymore ever, maybe make the goal to be, I'm going to try to catch it as early earliest as I can, and I'm going to try to reroute it at that point. So as earliest as you can, as as quickly as you can, when you notice yourself giving into those mental compulsions, regardless of what they are, try to bring it back to the train station. And to bring it back to the train station, we choose to sit with uncertainty. We allow letting ourselves feel uncomfortable. We relinquish needing to figure it out. We commit to not finding an answer or a, a conclusion to that question. Um, we bring it back to the present moment. We focus on whatever it is that is presently interesting us in that moment, um, whether that's work, uh, dates, school, whatever it is, a movie, anything like that. So um, it's going to be a lot easier to stop and redirect your mental compulsions when you catch them earlier on and they've only been going for a couple of seconds or minutes versus when you've been, you know, the whole day. The whole day has just gone to rumination. And that's why self-monitoring is so important when it comes to this stuff, right? You have to kind of just gradually like eat away at that uh, habit. And in order to do that, I think you have to become very aware of how often you're doing it, under what scenarios you're more likely to do it. Um, you kind of have to take this third person point of view or, or kind of like a bird's eye view of, oh my gosh, like what, what does it look like when I'm ruminating? When am I doing that? And just really, truly monitoring yourself. And I think it's important to so many people, um, these mental compulsions can really go under the radar because we don't see them as much as, say, hand washing or, you know, reassurance seeking on the computer or something like that. But your outward behavior may give you actually a lot of hints to your internal status. So especially when I was working at Rogers um, in the residential facility for OCD and anxiety recovery, I could always tell that someone was ruminating and kind of in their head when they were just sitting and kind of staring off into space and when they like physically were not moving very much. So in that way, you might be able to to pay attention more so to your outward behavior. And that might give you more indication of what's going on for you kind of inside. So for instance, I know when I'm taking a long shower or when I'm on my phone a lot in the morning, I'm probably giving into some more mental compulsions than, than I, uh, than I should be. And it's really important to conceptualize exposures as opportunities to practice response prevention. So exposures, again, are super important. They are a critical piece to this whole entire puzzle. Um, but if you're not doing response prevention, then you're negating all of your hard work. So go into these exposure situations, whether you plan them or whether they kind of situationally just randomly happen. These are opportunities for you to practice response prevention. These are opportunities for you to strengthen those muscles and to get stronger and know that certain periods of time are going to be harder. So um, usually unstructured time, time when you're by yourself, um, 
I typically see people struggle more with mental compulsions on weekends or at nighttime um, when they're showering or when they're driving. And I think it's because it is so unstructured. They're not having their attention pulled in a bunch of different directions for good or for bad. So I think one of the most difficult exposures for people who struggle with mental compulsions is to sit and do nothing, to just kind of sit and allow their thoughts to come. I also want to really drive home the point that rumination is not problem solving. So, you know, back to those sneaky little justifications uh, that rumination helps me solve a problem or prevents something bad from happening. Problem solving is forward thinking. It's constructive. It has an end point. It's helpful. Rumination is cyclical and it goes around and around with no way out. And you're digging yourself a, a, a deeper hole versus forward thinking that we see in problem solving. Rumination attempts also to answer or solve unanswerable questions. Um, and the final thing I will leave you guys with is I was working with a member um, at No CD and we were really struggling. He was really struggling with this concept of rumination and how to kind of go from being aware that he was engaging in that content and then, um, you know, not giving it attention, just like kind of moving on. Yep, I'm I, I'm having that thought and I'm now I'm going to move on to the next thing. And despite everything that we had talked about, kind of I, I brought out all my skills, I brought out all my metaphors and all the things that I could think of. And he said, the rumination just has such a bad hold on me. And it just came through me in a very artistic way. It was wonderful. I kind of responded to him, are you the one who's holding on to the rumination? And it ended up being a really great and really effective conversation about how we got to, it comes down to a letting go of, right? And Dr. Michael Greenberg goes over this really awesome analogy um, in one of the podcasts, either on the OCD stories or on the Fearcast podcast about how, um, you know, you can't hold on to a basketball and let go of it at the same time. So, you know, we can't continue to give in to these ruminations and hold on to this problem that we think is so important to figure out and let go of it at the same time. So I hope that these three episodes were helpful. I know this this topic is a doozy for a lot of you. Um, share it with a friend. Share it with a friend on your social. Um, so many people struggle with these and we don't even know it. So I appreciate you guys hanging in there for three episodes now. I hope that this served you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.